Welcome back, advocates. We're here again with our immigration advocacy expert, Professor Bill Hing. If you recall last episode, we took our first dive into defining immigration advocacy and policy and what they look like in practice. Now we're going to get to a few other burning questions of our listeners, as well as questions of the immigration community at large. First, we'll start with a simple one. What got you so interested in immigration, Professor? You know, it was kind of an accident uh, when I was a legal aid attorney. First, as a law student, volunteering at a legal aid office, uh, I wanted to do housing because uh, it just was another one of those things where people were being screwed. Tenants in low-income and working-class neighborhoods were being screwed and they being taken advantage of, and the conditions of the housing was horrible and. Uh, and, and so it was something I became very passionate about. And when I graduated, the office that I wanted to work at, which was in San Francisco Chinatown, they didn't have any openings except for an immigration job. And so, so I said, well, it's close enough. At least I'll be in the same office and maybe I'll figure out how to shift over to housing at some point. But... Uh, but once I started that, and I was lucky, you know, that I had a, uh, a couple of very good teachers, uh, uh, attorneys, the immigration attorneys at that office, and uh, and I guess what happened was one of the first times I walked into the immigration building uh, at 6:30 Sansom Street, it was actually for a housing client, and it was a Spanish-speaking housing client who lived in Chinatown, and I can speak a little bit of Spanish and. And we've resolved his housing situation, and he had revealed, though, that totally unrelated to his housing problem, uh, that he was upset because he had gone to the immigration building the day before to get some kind of application. I can't remember what it was. And that an investigator who was just horsing around, I don't know how else to say it, uh, saw him and and said, well, let me see your green card. And, and the guy showed him his green card, and the client showed the investigator his green card, and the investigator looked at it and took him into his office and took a pair of scissors out of his drawer and cut it in half and said, this is fake. And first he said, before cutting it, this is fake, and he cut it in half. Then he looked at it and he said, oh, you're right, it's not fake. It's actually a real green card. And, and threw it back at the guy. And so the guy had his two halves, and that's what he showed me. And I was irate. This is when I was a law student, okay? And I thought, I'm, that's fucked up. I'm going to yeah. just, I'm, and so I, I'm, it wasn't that far from our office. We walked down to 630 Central. He remembered where the guy's office was, and we went, we knocked on the door. And, and he said, uh, I said, the guy pointed, the door is open, and the, and the client pointed to the investigator who was sitting behind his desk. And we went over there, and I said, I was very irate on behalf of the client. I said, this is what my client told me that you did. Did you do this? He said, yeah, I did that. I said, well, what are you going to do about it? And he said, well, just go down to room 101, and they'll help him. And so I thought, okay. So I went down to room 101, and it was the public information room with a wait list that was, with a waiting line that was two hours long. And it was to go wait in line to go get an application for a new green card. But at that time, 
you know, it was like 50 bucks or something like that. But, you know, then I knew <laughs> this is very screwed. And so that definitely affected me. And that's why I was willing to do immigration law. <laughs> and then story after story like that comes through. I, I remember one time I was representing a guy from um, Eritrea and uh, he was trying to, he, he, forgot, he, he was sick. He had a heart disease. And it was a, a heart problem that uh, if he was in any kind of elevation, lived in any elevated community, it would affect how his heart operated. He had to live at sea level, basically. But he transferred schools without asking permission. He transferred schools from some city in California that is at a higher elevation than San Francisco, and he tried to transfer here. So we applied for an application for transfer of school, permission to transfer school, but it was late. And, and it was denied. The application was denied, even though we submitted all the medical stuff. And he was a good student, et cetera, et cetera. And I remember the, the, the denial letter. The, the denial letter said, you filed too late. And if elevation is a problem, then you should take a boat back to Eritrea, not an airplane. So it doesn't take much to be motivated against these guys. Really, it started with an accident and then just case after case of you showcasing your empathy. And, and honestly, it doesn't sound like it would take much to get angry about this. I'm getting angry right now just listening to your stories. Um, but speaking to a few of those stories, what are some common barriers that undocumented immigrants face in order for their case to prevail in court? So um, let me give you two common examples these days. Uh, one is asylum. Uh, because uh, that's in the news. It has a lot to do with the people at the border, and, and the vast majority are fleeing uh, hostile environments. And it, it could be gang stuff, cartel stuff. It could be even domestic violence. And the, the, the problem with them first uh, is getting into the country to be able to apply for asylum. Um, but substantively, let's say they do get a chance, the, the asylum laws are very difficult to, uh, to break through if, if you are a victim of generalized violence. And a lot of times that's what the problem is. The, the, the families and the individuals and the kids might be afraid of being recruited by a gang, uh, but they haven't been beaten up. Or you know, the cartel you know, is controlling the neighborhood, but they really, they didn't, burn your property, but you know something's going to happen to you if you stay there because it's just so intense. And without more, you're going to lose. And so you actually need to have specific threats. You need a lot of individualized evidence in order to prevail. Um, and the law just isn't constructed in a way for somebody who's caught in the middle of violence. You're expected to stay there and withstand it, and, um, and, and this is an environment that, uh, where the police are notorious for being corrupt or in partnership with the gangs or lazy, uh, and, and so it, it's just very difficult for asylum seekers because uh, of the current laws. The other typical kind of case is somebody who's been undocumented in the United States for many years, let's say 10 years, because the, there's something called cancellation of removal for somebody who's lived here for 10 years, 
stayed out of trouble. But the third requirement is a requirement that uses the word exceptional hardship, exceptional and extreme hardship. And the test for that is very difficult to achieve. It has to be hardship to a citizen, child, or spouse. And if you have a healthy family, you're going to lose. Let me just tell you that. So an immigration lawyer is put in this position of hoping that one of the children is dying of cancer. I'm, ex I'm only exaggerating a little bit, but the case law has evolved that if you are a just kind of a typical family who watches TV, goes to church, or, you know, family plays soccer, or, or whatever, or just hangs out and listens to music and hangs out with their cousins, that's not a recipe for hardship. And so the law doesn't recognize that. And, and so the Board of Immigration Appeals has these horrible cases, and they use this language racist language, that if we were to grant cancellation to this family from Mexico, then we would have to be opening the door to everybody who's just lived here for 10 years and has a normal family. And that isn't what the law is constructed for. So again, uh, th that's why we need a major reform and, a, uh, and, and the need for uh, something like uh, legalization for folks because the law just isn't possible. It just doesn't pro provide an, uh, an avenue for typical regular people that are just trying to do the right thing for their families. That kind of speaks to what you were talking about earlier about how immigration advocacy is a two-prong idea. One being the law itself, um, and, I, and I hear you there. Um, it sounds like you can't get fire insurance until the house burns down, and, and that just doesn't make sense. Uh, but I guess that's why the battle we should focus on is what the law actually is. We can argue about implementation, um, but that part of it is just something that can't be logically defended. Um, with that, though, let's, let's now get into some current events. There's some crazy stuff happening at the U.S.-Mexico border right now. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what's happening and how it got to that point? Well, I have to be honest. Uh, it, it started with Obama because uh, when there was a large surge of unaccompanied minors in 2014 and 2015 and then some family units, uh, prior to that time, what he did was his People would process folks, really wouldn't detain many, uh, and trust that they would show up for court, get their addresses of what they were, where they were headed, and 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 then they would show up in court. And and it, it was clear that the appearance rate was ninety percent. So there really wasn't a big absconsion rate. Okay, um, and in fact, the appearance rate was ninety nine percent for people that had representation, you know, which is a different issue. Um, but instead of continuing that policy, he, he opened up family detention centers in Texas, and first in New Mexico and then in Texas. And so 
I got it. I got to tell you, I'm so disappointed in that. And and uh, there were lawsuits brought over conditions and that kind of stuff. But but they got away with doing that. So when Trump Trump gets elected, he multiplies all that. More detention centers open. But then he takes different strategies. He, the thing about Trump was that many of us think that he's this kind of doofus that doesn't didn't know what the hell he's doing. And there's some truth to that. But he had some good people. He had some smart people. I shouldn't say good people. He had some smart people that knew the law. And so they, they, they came up with these ideas of making people remain in Mexico, the, the Migration uh, Protection Protocol. Um, they came up with this idea that if you came to a third country, you have to apply for asylum in that third country first. They came up with this idea that why don't we make Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras take refugees from the other countries as well? Why don't we make Mexico put pressure? Why don't we pay Mexico to, to do our dirty work and patrol the Guatemalan border with Mexico? And so, uh, so what happened by the, by the end of the, the Trump administration uh, which, of course, included the pandemic, was that he institute, Trump instituted all those policies I just mentioned, but then took one other vehicle, which is called Title 42, which is a provision dealing with health in the United States. And it has this kind of vague language that the, the CDC can make a recommendation for border safety to, to take extra precautions when it comes to people coming into the country. But that's all it says. And they went overboard and said, well, we're just close the border because of the pandemic. It didn't require that. They could have responded in a different way by saying, we're gonna make people quarantine, we're gonna make sure when vaccinations come about, to be vaccinated. But mostly it was, they could have instituted quarantines for 14 days and then let people come in. But they didn't. They just closed the border. And so Biden comes along and he continues Title 42. Um, well, the only exception was unaccompanied minors. And, and, and so it's continued to wreak havoc. He tried to cancel the, the uh, remaining Mexico policy, but Texas sued Biden. And so far, uh, Texas has prevailed on that. And, and, and this remaining Mexico policy, which is you've got to wait your turn before your asylum claim gets heard, and you're among 60,000 people waiting on the Mexico side. That's still in place, along with Title 42. And um, that is unfortunately, so that's bad enough, okay? But that's unfortunately what the excuse that was given for what happened to Haitians a few weeks ago that, that your listeners no doubt recall these horrible images of Border Patrol on horseback literally corralling Haitians with their horses, pushing them away from an encampment and using, they, the Border Patrol said, it wasn't whips, it's just that we have long reins on our bridles or whatever they're called on the horses and 
but they were whatever you want to call it a whip or a rain they were using these long reins to whip people and so uh, it really conjured up some they wouldn't conjure up it, it displayed images of just racism i mean it just says it all and uh, the excuse that was given was title 42 and mexico said, well, the remaining Mexico policy is not for Haitians, it's for Latin Americans, so we're not going to take them. And so that led to these deportation flights, and thousands, I think like 4,000 Haitians were flown to Haiti, many of whom had not been in Haiti for more than 10 years because they were in other parts of Latin America. And uh, other, other Haitians have been allowed in to apply for asylum, but the initial response of the Biden administration was no, you're not supposed to be here. And it's the same thing that Kamala Harris, vice president, whenever it was, four or six months ago, she's supposed to be in charge of root causes in Central America. She said the same thing. She said, don't come here. Uh, and that's, that attitude is not one of a humanitarian viewpoint, not taking the time to understand why, why people are migrating, just reacting to the fact that people are here and viewing them as commodities to be shipped away. It sounds like there's just layer upon layer of bureaucracy that's making it harder for people to come here legally. And that's just making the environment down there ripe for inhumanitarian actions. Now, transitioning from that, um, are there any other particular projects you're working on right now that you would like to call attention to? Well, I, I, I do want to mention this project that, that I know you're aware of, Rhonda, that I'm so, so excited about it, even though it's so challenging. Um, we have this um, program with the, the juvenile court in San Francisco and the the district attorney's office and the public defender's office of San Francisco that deals with first offenders, basically juveniles who happen to be uh, undocumented. And the, the district attorney is willing to withhold filing of the charges if we can demonstrate that these young kids, um, it's, it's boys and girls, but the ones we've been dealing with are mostly boys right now. If they will adhere to a plan to go to school, to, uh, to stay out of trouble, and, and take advantage of social services that we can come up with, and counseling, and that kind of thing, and um, that, that if we can attest to that uh, for a few months, that the district attorney won't, will drop the charges and, and the person is free to go. And I, I, I really am committed to that. And the problem is it's easier said than done. And um, some of these kids are cooperative and some are not for reasons, Ron, that you probably know better than me um, in terms of what's going through their minds. And the various pressures and challenges and who to trust and the different things that are pulling at these kids from different directions. Um, but I do want to say that, that there's just so many good students that are interested in helping in this project. 
and uh, you know I want to make it work and and so if um, you know if, if there are people listening out there who want to help with these efforts uh, that would be great yeah I'm also a big fan of this program because for me it, it's about giving a second chance to kids who never really got a good first one shout out to everyone working on that program because they really are doing amazing work. But like the professor said, the more hands we have on that project, the more good we can do. So reach out if you want to get involved or just want more information about the program. Any other uh, closing thoughts, professor? I just want to express that um, I, that was a kind introduction at the beginning. and. The only thing that I will admit, I, I'm not going to claim to be brilliant or innovative or anything like that. What I will cop to is that I'm, I've hung around, okay, and um, I encourage people to pay attention to what's going on. There, there's so many different news headlines that come across your social media or however you get your news. Um, but try to follow what's happening with immigrants and migrants because they are part of our community. They're an important part of our community. A lot of them are living underground. You know, we, we thought Biden was going to change all that overnight. Obviously, that hasn't happened, um, and so we all need to step up and 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 help out where we can. And so, uh, listen, you, you you everybody has their lives to lead, but you've got some time. I know everybody has some time, so take some time to help out if you can. Hear, hear, amen. That's a great way to wrap up part two of our interview with Professor Hank. I want to start by once again thanking him for his wisdom. He's obviously a very humble guy, but it is clear that there is a wealth of knowledge at his disposal. And to take on the task of disseminating that knowledge is definitely one worth commending. We at this podcast aim to follow his lead and take on that same duty. No Visa Needed is a podcast associated with the University of San Francisco School of Law's Immigration Policy Clinic, where taking on tough challenges is the priority. Working through the jungle that is immigration law for attorneys and commoners alike can be challenging, but we're here to help guide you through it. This is No Visa Needed. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.